This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, I am joined by Doris Meisner, who is the former Commissioner of Immigration and Naturalization Service under President Bill Clinton, heading the program from 1993 to 2000. And now, currently, she is the Senior Fellow and Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. You have over 30 years of immigration experience and understanding the landscape, the environment. So I kind of wanted to get a snapshot of the scope and, and the transitions that has occurred over the years from a policy stance. Could you point to one of the more significant ones you've seen in immigration between your time in INS till now here at MPI? Whether it's structural changes, social shifts, legislative objectives? Well, there have been lots of changes, and I must confess it's been even longer than 30 years that I've been <laughs> in this landscape. Mm-hmm. So, what, you know, I can trace it back in my own experience and memory uh, to the 1970s, actually. And um, I would have to say that the biggest macro change is one that is probably quite evident, and that is that immigration has moved from having been a fairly niche issue or, or certainly on the margins of, uh, of politics and policy to being a central issue for the country as well as in our politics. And that has been partly a result of the way in which immigration facts on the ground have actually changed. We are in more and more a country where immigration is our source of growth, but it has also been a change that has come about because the politics surrounding immigration have become increasingly not only polarized, but angry. And it is ultimately the paralysis of Congress and its inability to put into place immigration laws that align with the realities on the ground that have contributed to that breakdown in the politics. It may be chicken and egg, but one feeds the other. Yes. Um, and I, I want to get back into that uh, very shortly in terms of Congress uh, stalling or inaction and action and where that falls today. Um, but you were also a part of the creation, and you were at the inception of the Migration Policy Institute in 2001, correct? Well, yes, actually, the Migration Policy Institute dates back to a program that I created and ran at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the mid-1980s. And it's a program that started as a fairly modest program of focusing on immigration policy issues and convening discussions. But then when I went back into the government in the 1990s as the commissioner of the immigration service, it grew and grew. And at the end of the 1990s, 2001, actually, uh, it then broke off from being a program at the Carnegie Endowment to becoming a self-standing uh, non-think tank, the Migration Policy Institute. I did not do that. My successor did that. 
So he gets the credit for being the entrepreneur that actually uh, established MPI. You were definitely a pivotal point. And at that time, can you remember of what was the need that you guys were initially trying to solve that ultimately brought this institute to life? Yes, uh, it, it was certainly the growth uh, and significance of the importance of immigration in the United States, but also migration around the world and immigration and migration as major trends that were increasingly relevant to countries all over the world. It also was the fact that, how do you really talk about immigration? When you talk about immigration, you talk about it from, one talks about it from the standpoint of admissions to the country, of different streams of migrants, humanitarian streams, employment-based streams, the uh, issues of um, questions like d the diversity of countries, you know, the variety of countries from which people come, but also how do immigrants do once they get to the United States? The integration of immigrants, uh, the role that immigration plays through remittances and other kinds of transfers of knowledge to source countries. So there's a whole continuum of issues that are involved when you really look at immigration. And they really have, and were at that time, functioning pretty independently of each other. And one of the things that MPI has tried to do is connect the dots. These things are all connected to each other. Right. And connecting the dots. As we fast forward today, I know you recently held a seminar on the Biden administration and assessing his immigration record, taking into account Build Back Better. And I know during his campaign, one of the main tasks was to bring order to the border and improve the asylum system. Um, where did these efforts stand today? Well, it's very interesting to look at the actual record mm -hmm. of the first year of the Biden administration as compared with what the press reporting has been on the first year of the Biden administration. And it takes me back a little bit to the question that you just asked about MPI and MPI's origins, because one of the things that we really focus on and really force ourselves to do is look at the evidence and then come to views and analysis and recommendations based on the evidence as compared to having a point of view and then trying to find the facts that support that point of view. So when you really look at the evidence and you go you know, ground up, you see that the public discussion around immigration over this past year has been focused almost entirely on the border and on the Congress and its inability to enact legislation of the very sweeping nature that the Biden administration proposed. And of course, that legislation that the Biden administration proposed started off with a broad, broad legalization program and uh, also dealt with other issues that have to do with what only the Congress can do. But in the absence of the Congress acting on that legislation and given the reality of an administration that, as you said, promised in its campaign to change the way in which enforcement at the Southwest border occurred, particularly surrounding asylum and committed to more humane 
procedures and processes. Yes, those things have certainly been areas where the Biden administration has worked hard on new policies, but there are hundreds, literally uh, more than a hundred new policies and policy changes that the Biden administration put into, has, 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 has made. And it's interesting against the backdrop of the Trump administration, because we've always characterized the Trump administration, we ourselves at MPI and the overall record as the most active administration uh, in, that, that we've seen on immigration issues. And as it turns out, the Biden administration in its first year has been far more active in the changes that it's made than the Trump administration was. And of course, those changes have been quite different from those that were made under Trump. Some of them have retracted uh, what Trump did, but there are many other new policies that don't have anything to do with Trump that the Biden administration has put into place. And when we look at them, what they show us is that the uh, issues of the flows at the border, of course, have had a much larger than life reality to them. And they're the ones that have become so deeply politicized. But the less understood changes have actually affected the lives of immigrants and migrants in the United States in very direct ways that have changed their circumstances, at least from a migrant standpoint, to the better on many fronts, particularly where enforcement in the interior of the country is concerned, where protection under TPS is concerned. I mean, under TPS, for instance, when this administration came into office, maybe about uh, 350 to 400,000, I think more like around 350,000 people were protected by TPS. TPS grants have been broadened and preserved, whereas they were being eliminated under the prior administration to protect almost a million people now. Uh, obviously, DACA has been preserved and is going forward. So these are the kinds of changes that are less noticeable because they're granular, but they actually are relevant to people's lives uh, in, in ways that are, are quite remarkable. That doesn't change the fact that the politics surrounding the border and the inability of Congress to act remain major challenges, but it does say that in order to understand what's going on, with immigration and with the administration, it's really important to grasp that much broader set of significant changes that are in place. Right. Absolutely. Um, and what you were speaking to in terms of like the immigration actions that the Biden administration took this year versus Trump uh, in his first year, there was 300 immigration actions that were taking place in, in Biden's first year and only 86 in Trump's. However, news reporting and public perception um, hasn't focused on that much. And uh, what you were saying is like, it's maybe the, the news that gets less airtime. I was wondering, uh, why do you think that narrative has not been as covered as it might've been? Well, it's 
a number, I can make a number of speculations about that. And some of them are basically speculations, but some of them also are quite clear. And that is that the issues of the border have always been the tip of the spear in terms of what it is that the public understands uh, and uh, pays attention to in immigration policy. But it's also, the, the border is also the issue that is the most likely to be politicized and to be exploited for opportunistic reasons. And so the fact that the Trump administration made such an issue of the border, let's just always remember, build the wall, build the wall, became one of the key chants in the Trump campaigning. So the border has been top of the of the list uh, for years preceding the Trump administration, but Trump took it to a new level. And so the idea that the, some of those policies would be changed, of course, galvanized uh, uh, Trumpism, uh, you know, to push back. And that's taken the form, interestingly, of several governors, particularly Governor Abbott in Texas, and uh, next in line, Governor DeSantis in Florida to really run with the border issue uh, as a way of uh, opposing the Biden administration and opposing Democrats in their approaches to immigration. So that's, that is one reason. And the, we all know who have been in this business for a long time that issues of the border suck the oxygen out of the room politically in terms of space <clears throat> for policy overall. As long as members of Congress and others who are reluctant about legislating on immigration can point to the border, and this goes back years and years, uh, one continues to deal with the phenomenon that until the border is fixed, we're not gonna do anything else. And so that set in almost immediately with the onset of a new administration. Right. So yeah, it's the most emotionally charged topic, right? That takes most of the air <laughs> out of the room. But I, I know, especially from the webinar that actually did not previously know, it was like the arrests have also dropped from around 6,000 a month under the Trump administration to 3,000 uh, among that's happening currently and detention occupancy has been at its lowest rates since 1999, which is quite significant. The different programs and initiatives that are not really talked about. And then also reversing the Trump public charge rule, which its criteria, I mean, we covered it in multiple episodes, <laughs> was basically determined upon whether your age or education and income. And that was reversed and, and rolled back. So these are the things that might not get as much airtime, but for those who it does impact, it is quite significant. Well, yes, and it, you could even go so far as to say it's life-changing because where, where issues of arrests and deportation are concerned, those are truly significant. Uh, public charge is an excellent example of a, of a different type of change that makes it uh, 
uh, that also has life-changing implications from the standpoint of whether or not you're eligible for a green card uh, or, or, or not. And that's what I mean by saying that some of the changes that were made uh, in the first year of the Biden administration really affected the lives of individual migrants in significant, meaningful ways that, that tend not to have the kind of uh, splashy element to them that uh, July numbers being higher than June numbers at the border, you know, might have as a headline, but that actually do, right, that actually do matter in people's lives. And, and I think, you know, the issue of arrests in the interior and the detentions in the interior, you know, that was really a very straightforward matter of moving from an overall tone set in the Trump administration that everybody is at risk, that very well reported and you know widely understood statement, look over your shoulder because you may be, if you're here without a legal status, you're at risk. That changing that from being a broad level climate of fear tone to one where the government states and the administration states that it has priorities for enforcement, that limited resources need to be used in the name of public safety where enforcement is concerned, rather than an overall climate of fear, which is very much an enforcement strategy that was used by the last administration, that's a major change and that is making a difference. I mean, if you had the crystal ball looking into the future, further in 2022 or 2023 from your team's research and the data that you've been receiving, how far are we from returning to a pre-Trump status quo? And are there any particular projects or initiatives that are underway that will get us closer to that? Well, I don't, I don't think that there is likely a, a, a pre-Trump status quo, if only because changes happens everywhere and, you know, things adjust. And so the real issue is, and, and it's not to say that pre-Trump status quo was where things should be in any event. I mean, we, as a country, we've needed for far longer than just the last four years to rationalize our immigration system more effectively, to have a set of laws that are more flexible and that are more aligned uh, with the way immigration is affecting the country and where our labor market is going and where our growth and population age structure is evolving and so forth. So, so there's no real good old days thing here, I don't think, uh, except in people's selective memory. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but in terms of going forward, we're not in a good place on immigration. We, we really, there is only so much that an executive branch can do. And there is only so much that can be accomplished through executive action. And you're seeing an administration that is 
using its executive authority to the fullest. There certainly are things that many of us would like to see happening more quickly, but at the same time, if they happen too quickly, then they're subject to litigation and subject to uh, being, uh, uh, you know, not, not, not succeeding. And so in, in many areas, the administration is proceeding with a great deal of caution in order to make the changes be as durable as possible. But the Congress is the missing player here. And I, I, until there are different outcomes in elections that create more of a center, I, I mean, the, the, the deeper logic or the deeper reality here is that immigrant, even though we're a country of immigrants, we have changed our immigration legislation very infrequently over the course of our history. I mean, the way democracies work and the way an issue that is as dynamic as immigration is should work is that you make adjustments along the way. You recalibrate as you go. But that's not been the case. We simply have been unable to do that and so uh, politically. And so in order to really reduce some of the political heat that builds up and surrounds immigration legislative changes. It builds up and builds up and builds up. Uh, and there are so many conflicting and contradictory forces at play that it becomes legislatively its own worst enemy, um, you know, by not being able to make smaller changes as we go. And uh, any legislation that has passed, if you look at the 1986 law, the 1990 law, that's really the last major change, that's two or three economies ago in terms of, you know, the kind of an economy that we have, they all require a strong center. You cannot, we've not ever been able to pass immigration legislation without it being bipartisan. Uh, and, um, and we don't have a strong center in our politics today. And that affects not only immigration and the potential for immigration legislation, it affects many other aspects of our political life and of our uh, difficulties in legislating and in the Congress. That can only change through elections. And that's why things that are going on now that have to do with redistricting and competitive districts and democracy itself, the structures of of, of democratic processes, all of those things become part of the answer to the question about how and when can we work our way out of this immigration dilemma. I would say that working our way out of this immigration dilemma requires reconstructing a strong center in our politics. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't make certain piecemeal progress with ad hoc centers around an issue such as DACA, for instance, but even that is highly elusive. And the effort that was made through Build Back Better to do it as simply an issue of the very, very slim Democratic majority has failed. So we do have to kind of go back, I think, to what it is that I've just said, how do you rebuild a center, either around an immigration issue or two, 
and or more broadly. Even now, the general public is starting to understand how ineffective polarization has been. When you look in the Congress and the Senate and just politics in general, both parties have become more strongholded in their own factions and, and able to uh, reach across the, the party line. And I think there's now a, a new movement and there's more talks about finding that center, finding that commonality, because we cannot continue any sort of beneficial movement towards uh, a goal without having cooperation. Hopefully this catches on more and more <laughs> on Capitol Hill, but I think the public sentiment is starting to understand that and sort of push against the polarization that's been happening. But Doris, this was an absolutely insightful, insightful conversation. I would love to have uh, you or anybody else on the team on again because we, we have to do a recap later, maybe six months down the road, eight months down the road. It's like, okay, I know you guys have been researching these policy points now. Where are we today? You know, uh, I, I would love to have that because you do absolutely amazing work. And these are the types of words and, and research that Capitol Hill uses and needs in order to make informed decisions. So uh, I appreciate all that you do. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, we will keep looking at the evidence and <laughs> hope, to shed, hope to shed light, not heat. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.